The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the game changers, you're in the right place. I say it, I mean it, and we think it's always true. So what are we talking about today? Well, I have an interesting quote from a safe city survey conducted back in 2015 by Hitachi Data Systems. It's a question more than a statement. Can smart cities also be safer cities? And that's what we're going to talk about. This is actually part two of a topic we started on Tuesday, April 25th, 2017. The title of that episode was Smart Cities and Public Safety Technology Monitor, Predict, Prevent Crime. And we're just adding part two to that title. Same panelists, some new opening quotes, and let me just set the stage here a little bit. With 70% or more of the world's population projected to live in cities by 2050, it's really not that far away. That's what, 32 years, 32 and a half years? Public safety is top of mind for city leaders, for businesses, for residents, for visitors, for everyone. We want to be safe in our cities. Come on. We want them to be beautiful and efficient and cost-effective and exciting but we want to be safe. Very, very elusive today and possibly still into the future. What will it take? Well, we've looked at some of the options that are out there for how technology is already helping cities become safer. And we think, and we'll talk to our experts in a minute, we think that blending crime monitoring device data, that's the data that's produced by things like license plate cameras and surveillance cameras in crime areas. Well, they're kind of standalone right now. A lot of these systems are siloed. S-I-L-O apostrophe E-D. I never figured out how to spell that one. They're siloed. But if we could put it all together, get those systems talking to each other, get them collaborating in real time, maybe the authorities can correlate a license plate with an incident, a traffic incident. Maybe they can dynamically reposition surveillance cameras on a street corner somewhere or many cameras on many corners to watch suspects fleeing a crime scene. And maybe... Just maybe they can intelligently predict instead of simply reacting to crime. Of course, the big final maybe is maybe we won't have any crime because everybody will love living in these cities and nobody will need to have crime because everybody will have their fair share of the pie of opportunities and money and resources. But that's a bigger dream. So the question on the table is how safe is your city, your neighborhood, and what's going to happen by 2050? I'm pleased to tell you our three panelists returning today are Justin Bean, Director of Smart City Solutions Marketing at Hitachi Insight Group. Joining him on the panel, 
Dr. Allison Brooks, Research Director of Smart Cities and Public Safety at IDC, and rounding out the, te- the panel, James Alfano, Global Lead Solutions Expert for Public Security and Intelligence at SAP. And, of course, we're doing a shout-out to the sponsor of this series who could not join us today, Marlon Zelkowitz at SAP. So, Justin Bean, we're going to start off with your new quote today. You sent me a wonderful quote from Joseph Pulitzer. Anybody wondering who is Pulitzer? Well, come on. Pulitzer Prize, you've heard of that. He lived from 1847 to 1911. He was a Hungarian-American newspaper publisher of the St. Louis, or St. Louis if you prefer, post-dispatch in the New York world. He introduced the techniques of yellow journalism to the newspapers he bought in the 1880s. He was also a leading figure in the Democratic Party. What might be most interesting to those of you who are not familiar with him, in the 1890s, he was in fierce competition with his competitor, William Randolph Hearst, whose New York Journal caused them both to use yellow journalism. Look it up. It's a whole other topic. Also, publisher founded the Columbia School of Journalism, finally called the J School, by philanthropic bequest. It opened in 1912. So, long story short, here's the quote Justin has selected from Joseph Pulitzer. Quote, there is not a crime. There is not a dodge. There is not a trick. There is not a swindle. There is not a a vice which does not live by secrecy. Justin and I want to say, shh. Hi, Justin. (laughs) Got to be keeping a secret. Justin, how have you been? It's been a couple months. What's new with you? Yeah, I've been great. Um, Traveling around a bit. I'm calling in today from uh, beautiful and a little bit cloudy Seattle, Washington. Uh, another great smart city out here, um, and yeah, sipping a nice cup of tea. Well, we didn't get to that part yet, Cole. What's in your cup today? And I'd love to, but talk to me about the Joes. We are we'll, we'll skip you when we come around to that. You're you're ahead of the game here, Justin. How come you picked this quote by Joseph Pulitzer? We're talking about public safety, technology, smart cities. There's not a crime, not a dodge, not a trick, not a swindle, not a vice which does not live by secrecy. How does that work with our topic today, please? Sure. So this quote may seem a little out of place, right? We may be talking about journalism, but I want to take a little bit of creative license here. Uh, And so I would assert that there isn't a crime. There's not an inefficiency. uh, There's not a uh, a point of waste uh, that doesn't live in secrecy as well. So when we're talking about smart cities and we want them to be safer, we want them to be more efficient, more sustainable, uh, and also more fun. The way that we find out about those things is through data. Right. So if we're able to have all of that data uh, about the real world, then our cities won't be living in secret. Uh, the crimes that occur will not be secrets and the causes for them will not be either. The wastes that occur uh, through emissions uh, or, you know, actual physical waste will also not be uh, in secrecy. And the inefficiencies that happen within our organizations, we can uh, not let those live in secrecy either. And we can make ourselves more effective and efficient. So I'm reapplying this quote to the smart city era because I think it's really important to think about uh, the data. If we can pull this data from the real world, uh, then there's so much we can do with it, right? So when we think about uh, taking a scientific approach, uh, science has helped us to solve many uh, medical and biotechnology challenges, uh, challenges of transportation, challenges of communication. All of these different things have been uh, solved, uh, if not, uh, if we haven't just made progress on them because of science. And the first foundational thing that science requires is data. Without data, we can't make a hypothesis, we can't test it, we can't experiment, and then we can't come to a conclusion that helps us understand the world better so that we can make an improvement. And I would argue that 
what we need to do is take a scientific approach to our cities and to our societies to figure out exactly how they tick, what causes the challenges that we face, uh, and then how can we take that scientific approach again to figure out the solutions that solve those challenges and make the cities the places that we want to live. So that's why I chose that quote this morning. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes. Allison here. Uh, I just wanted to chime in because it was something that I've been really thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks as I have been chatting with uh, law enforcement uh, um, with regards to a project that I'm working on on big data analytics and visualization. And one of the concerns they have been chatting with me about um, relates exactly to what Justin was just talking about with this whole secrecy, but from the flip side of the uh, of the equation in that they're really concerned about the tech companies increasingly kind of what they call going dark on law enforcement. So, for example, um, there's all, or, and, and also the judicial continuum that way, going dark that way, where, where there's all sorts of uh, increased data available to us, and they're finding that increasingly, even though it's from, um, or maintained from open sources, it's not usable to them. There, there's all of these privacy protections or the court's ruling that it's not admissible. You know, the this, this Siri stuff that we saw a couple of months ago, um, the Apple iPhone, that sort of stuff. So I just wanted to flag that as a, a larger trend that is kind of a different, um, a different take on Justin's uh, secrecy quote there. Thank you very much, Dr. Allison Brooks. I was just getting around to introducing you with your opening quote, so I'm glad you jumped in. That was a great reference point, and I appreciate it. And Allison, as I said, Research Director of Smart Cities and Public Safety at IDC. And Allison, a shout-out to our good friends at IDC, please, has a quote from Frank Burns. Now, when I read this quote in Allison's notes before the show, I kept looking for Frank Burns, and I was putting into Wikipedia, Frank Burns, and I was putting into, and it kept coming up with the name of the actor, Larry Linville. And I said to myself, but I didn't Google Larry Linville. I Googled Frank Burns. And those of you who are MASH fans out there, Allison is laughing at me, hopefully with pity and empathy. Those of you who are MASH fans out there, one of the greatest, most popular TV shows ever, 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 with a very, very interesting topic. Yes, the war and the medics and the romances and the interactions and all of the crazy people who are out there in this is make-believe but all-too-real land. Uh, of course, Larry Linville played Major Frank Burns. Let me give a little background here, Allison, before we get to the quote. Major Franklin Delano Marion Frank Burns was his full name. He was considered the main antagonist in the film. Actually, Allison, he was played in the original film by Robert Duvall. And Mm -hmm. then... He was played in the first five seasons of the TV series MASH by Larry Linville. In the TV series, Major Burns is a firm believer in military discipline and fancies himself a superior surgeon, but his actions invariably reveal his incompetence, and other surgeons have to dive into the poor patient on the table at the last minute to save them from not getting off the operating table. He did become a buffoon, but in in the beginning, he was uh, efficiently micromanaging as a commander. So here is the quote. Let me give the quote Allison picked, and then I'll put it in context. The quote is, it's nice to be nice, dot, 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 to the nice. Here is the dialogue. Major Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, yes, uh, played by Loretta Swit, said, It's a very genuine pleasure to have you at the 4077th, Nancy, dear. And Nancy Sue Parker responds, Oh, it's mine, too. Everyone's been so terrific about being nice to me. And here's where Major Frank Burns, played by Larry Linville, jumps in. It's nice to be nice, 
to the nice. And by the way, Larry Lava, Larry Lavin Linville, who was married five or six times, American actor, uh, passed away in April 2000 at the age of 60, and we miss him. So, Allison Brooks, officially welcome to Game Changers. And tell me, smart cities, crime, secrecy, data, looking at public safety, and now you're talking about being nice to the nice to the nice. You've got to explain this. Welcome, Allison. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I always think it's important to sort of, well, A, I think it's just a funny quote. It's always something we're ban- you know, bantering around the house um, a lot, at my house anyways. And, and as to Justin's earlier point about, you know, injecting an element of fun into the smart cities um, work that we all do, that's ultimately what we're doing here is looking for outcomes-based urban digital transformation. That's what we consider the smart cities sort of overall mission. And so what you're really trying to, you know, put into effect is something that's, that's, good at the end of the day and, and, and is improving the quality of life. And so for um, what we do in the smart cities realm um, at IDC, we have sort of five priorities that have to do with, you know, economic development and civic engagement and what people are trying to do there, sustainable urban planning, data-driven public safety, and then resilient uh, energy infrastructure, and then lastly, intelligent transportation. And in each of those sort of sub-verticals, no matter what we're sort of looking at, what we're trying to do is improve the civic quality of life um, to that end. And so that's why I just thought it was a good, you know, it's, it's so bleak out there these days that I just really wanted to inject a little bit of uh, fun into our discussion and, and sort of remind ourselves of what ultimately we're engaged in this for and why we're all kind of studying and, uh, you know, working in this industry. Thank you very much. And, Allison, just a sidebar here. Do you agree with my opening comment that if in a perfect world of smart cities in the future by 2050, people won't need to be criminals, it would all be solved? What do you think? Is that a hope and a dream and a wish and a prayer? Or, Bonnie, don't even go there. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think that some of the stuff that we're, we're wrangling with and wrestling with right now um, will be eliminated and no longer a concern because I think we're getting smarter and more proactive about how we manage and sort of prevent people from getting on the wrong side of the tracks in the first place. But I feel like at the same time, um, the, the complexity of crime is escalating just as quickly. And so, you know, when I talk with law enforcement organizations in North America, yeah, they're really struggling to keep on top of the IT and the, the developments that even the, the criminals are using in terms of um, IT. So, for example, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and, and blockchain, trying to um, you know get ahead of that game so that they can they can step ahead and, and trace the crime backwards um, as it's occurring. So right now there's a little bit of a lag in some of those emerging areas, and I think that's always going to be a perpetual struggle. But um, I do think that you are correct in that there will be this this notion of that traceability and breadcrumbs um, that will occur at a more profound level. It'll be interesting to see how the privacy um, commissioners and how citizens actually um, respond to that kind of thing, because we don't mind being tracked to a certain extent, and then at some point the amount of data that other organizations have about us becomes a bit problematic and troublesome, and there's a little bit of backlash. So I think that there's a possibility for a bit of backlash in terms of that that notion of the surveillance society we don't we don't mind being you know using ways but we don't necessarily want um you know Mm -hmm. facial recognition software tracking us from one location to another as we're just going about our our day-to-day operations 
Not yet, and watch it all unfold on our crime shows and see what they imagine our future will be in surveillance. <laughs> oh, my, don't even go through a toll anymore with a yeah. with an easy pass, i got to tell you. Thank you very much, Allison. And waiting patiently on third base here in the field is James Alfano, Global Lead Solutions Expert for Public Security and Intelligence at SAP. And James has sent us a quote from FDR. That's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And what's interesting, James, I don't know if you heard me say that the full name of the character Allison just quoted in MASH was Major Franklin Delano Mario Frank Burns so here we have the President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and I'm sure that's no coincidence. FDR finally known to those of us who, who studied American history 1882 to 1945 was an American statesman and political leader who was the 32nd President of the U.S. from 1933 until his death in 1945. He won a record four count them, four presidential elections and emerged as a central figure in world events during the mid-20th century. He directed the U.S. government during most of the Great Depression and World War II, which certainly formed a lot of who our, what our country is today. He built the New Deal Coalition, and I'll let you all look that up. He is rated by scholars as one of the three greatest U.S. presidents, not surprisingly, alongside George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Here is the quote James has selected from FDR. The only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. James, welcome back. How are you? Very good, thank you. Thank you for having me today. We are delighted. So tell me about this quote. This is serious stuff here. Only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. What did FDR mean and how does it relate to smart cities and public safety, please? You know, I think, again, similar to my quote from the first show, we're always talking about the problems that we have and just how cumbersome they can be or how daunting. Um, uh, we've heard, you know, a couple of things in and around siloed information about how we bring information together and then the rules and the arguments for who can see this information or how we put the information together or the format of the information. Uh, there are several, several challenges that face us, <clears throat> not just because we have the technology, but we also because we have policies and legislature in place that either protect or sometimes prohibit us from bringing the information together. I think when I think about um, FDR, I'm always thinking about the fact that he was able to implement policies that helped the nation grow at that time. And as I look at cities and states, and often sometimes even some countries that we've seen in the past with some of the terrorist attacks, how they've changed dramatically, how they've changed their policy, how they're reacting, how chaos is becoming less confusing. Um, mm -hmm. They're learning through the changes of policy and their leaders. And, of course, when I think of FDR, uh, you couldn't think of someone who was more prolific for his time in the fact of how he governed and how he changed and even reorganize the government, you know, just like the executive reorganization bill, just changing the way the office did, changing its responsibilities, broadening it to meet the times so that they could take on the challenges. Thank you very much. Very profound, and I appreciate that. Let me ask you the same question. Let, let me rephrase the question I asked Allison, if you don't mind, James. What would FDR say about the possibility that we won't have crime by 2050? And if that's not a possibility, what would he say about all of this technology that he could not even have imagined back in his day? What do you think, James? Yeah, for FDR, I'd like to think that he would have embraced the technology. FDR was the first president to come up with the with trying to become closer to citizens. So he, he started that fire chat kind of a conversation. 
in a time when the radio was the greatest and latest new invention. I would have a belief that uh, FDR would embrace technology and try to incorporate it as he tried to move forward. Thank I you. I like that he would yep. say. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that he would say we would eliminate crime completely, but I definitely believe that uh, we would create stronger deterrence. Or that's how and what, feel. what do you think FDR would say if he knew that you and I and Justin and Allison were talking on something called the Internet with very few wires? We were sitting in four places around the U.S. talking to each other over the air on boxes with wires and cables, and we weren't even seeing each other, and we were successfully having a conversation when he was talking into the radio box back in the day for his fireside chats. Would he be amazed? Would he be thrilled? Would he say, I want to be part of Internet radio? What would he say, James? I think he would. I think he'd see it as another channel and another opportunity to, to talk to the citizens he was trying to serve. And uh, he would embrace it. Thank you very much. And I'm, I'm ready now to go back to Justin Bean and ask where you're calling from and what's in your cup. But you already covered that. So, Justin, let me <laughs> ask you the same question. Uh, let's see. You quoted Joseph Pulitzer. So what would Pulitzer, who lived until 1919, about 30 years less than FDR lived, who passed away in 45, what would he say about Internet radio? What would he say about the possibility that no more crime by 2050? What would those have been within his purview to embrace or say, nah? what do you think? I, it's a tough call. Uh, I mean, he definitely was uh, one for more information and more democratization of information, which is what we're getting. Um, but again, dealing with some of the same challenges of, uh, you know, yellow journalism and some of the same uh, economic pressures of satisfying the audience at the cost of uh, journalistic integrity. Um, so that's kind of on his side. But I, I would add to it that uh, so I lived in Japan for about five years. And one thing I noticed about public safety there, obviously, it's one of the safest countries in the world. Uh, however, there's still an element of crime uh, and, and violent crime. Uh, it's extremely rare, but it, the, when it does happen, it's extremely brutal. Uh, and so some of the violent crimes that you see on the news there are, you know, right up there with the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, right? It's horrendous. Um, however, it's extremely rare and you don't get the same type of, um, quote unquote, everyday street crime uh, that we see in the United States and, and some other countries around the world. Uh, and so I think when we start looking outside of our borders and start looking at uh, other countries and, and, again, applying that scientific model for uh, how, how and why uh, are they safe, right? You look at cities like Hong Kong, which are extremely safe. Um, much of Asia itself is extremely safe, even though you have these extremely dense uh, cities, people coming in from around the world. Um, so a lot of the arguments that people make for the persistence of crime don't really hold water there. Uh, so I would, you know, call on the research community and the smart city community to start, you know, not that they're not doing this already, but to look more at a lot of the cities around the world and, and dig into some of the data that helps them understand uh, why are these other places uh, much safer and uh, what can we do in our cities to, to solve that challenge? Uh, because it is uh, attainable. There are plenty of countries in the world that live extremely safely. Um, and I, I believe it's attainable for the U.S. It's just a matter of time, in my opinion, uh, when we actually get there and how we go about it are, are the big question marks. 
There we go. Maybe we could even use the technology called gamification to motivate people to not choose the life of crime and to find other ways of getting through life. So remind me again, Justin, what are you drinking? And then we'll ask the same question of Dr. Allison Brooks and James Alfano. Justin, what's in your cup right now? Make it really special. <laughs> uh, so unfortunately, once again, I'm, I'm sipping uh, some hotel English breakfast tea, so not super exciting uh, as the cobra blood that we talked about last time. Um, But it did remind me of another story. So I'm not much of a coffee drinker myself. uh, And this has kind of um, (laughs) been been bad for me over the years because there's so many coffee drinkers, especially in tech and coming from the Northwest. I mean, there's kind of a a coffee worship that happens. Um, Mm -hmm. But making coffee is not something that's in my uh, wheelhouse. And so, you know, basically Folgers Crystals is as far as I go. Uh, so I, uh, I did this internship when, uh, when I was getting my MBA. Uh, I, I saw an opportunity in Cape Town, South Africa, doing renewable energy work and decided to, you know, take a risk and go for it, um, pay for the flight out there and, and everything and, and uh, do this really awesome internship. Uh, a, a couple weeks in, um, you know, I was talking with a couple of uh, uh, the guys that worked there, and, and one of them said, all right, well, Justin, you're the intern, but, you know, why don't you make us some coffee? And I was like, oh, man, I don't, I don't think you want me to do that, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, so I went in the other room. I, I got the coffee together, mixed it all up, heated up the water, um, and brought it back in, and they started drinking it and immediately spit it out uh, because there were still the, uh, the grains of coffee in the, uh, in the actual drink. It wasn't the Folgers crystals I thought it was. It was actually some really expensive ground coffee that they had gotten from Mozambique or something. Um, and so it was probably 20 times as strong as it should have been uh, and had the consistency of, of mud after it got mixed in a little bit. So uh, fortunately for me, I was never asked to make coffee again. Uh, and they viewed my internship as more of a uh, strategic internship and uh, wanted to keep me on Excel and out of the, uh, away from the coffee maker. So that's my story of why I don't drink coffee. <laughs> that's a great story. I love Allison, Allison, where are you and what are you drinking today? We love a story from Allison. Go ahead. Allison, what are you drinking or what are you thinking about drinking? Well, I actually realized, and just just thinking about the answers for this uh, for this question, that um, I, I have like a favorite cocktail of basically every month of the year, kind of thing, and it comes from this uh, woman that I follow. Her name uh, she's a, a chef. Her, uh, she, she goes by the Smitten Kitchen, and <laughs> so she, she's like, you know, normal sane people don't really have a favorite cocktail of, of the month, and I was like, that's me. I have exactly that. So I have. In, like, February, it's, like, blood orange, margarita time. June, it's strawberry, red and black kind of thing. And the Manhattan for, you know, September, that sort of stuff. And so that's, that's as, uh, as uh, I'll blow your mind as I'm going to get today about <laughs> the favorite drink question. Okay. Thank you very much. And that's that's yes, what I is my strategy for getting out of actually, like, chores, like vacuuming. I just become <laughs> such a terrible vacuumer that nobody ever gets me to do it again kind of thing. So I think you're just too- <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's like we, when you're a kid maybe and we, you break the dishes on accident and your parents would ask you to do, do the dishes again. <laughs> too dangerous, exactly. Too dangerous, yeah, and a yeah. crime a crime was not committed, just a girl who didn't like to use a vacuum cleaner. We'll, we'll get past that one, Alice, and we'll help you. We'll get some new technology for you. We'll get a robot that loves to vacuum, and you can make it your your uh, your chat bot that does the chores. Exactly. I appreciate that. And, and it can iron, too, if you don't mind. That's something I hate to do. It just never, the iron never comes out of the closet. It's all wash and wear. What can I tell you? James Alfano, where are you today? And let's have an interesting coffee break story from you any beverage what's your favorite 
uh, this morning or this afternoon now, I, I, I am having coffee. I drink a lot of coffee, unfortunately. I'm trying to pull back, and uh, as soon as the headaches subside, I'll, I'll keep pulling back. Um, but this morning, I didn't have a lot of time to, to get around, so I, I raced out to grab breakfast, and I'm drinking uh, Dunkin' Donuts hazelnut coffee, mm. which, uh, you know, it's just one of those, you know, side pleasures of, of having hash browns and, uh, and an egg and cheese with, with a Dunkin' Donut coffee. It, it couldn't be better right now for me. It sounds lovely, and you sound so calm and contented. You really do. I wasn't sure whether you were saying that's great or not. And as I listened, I heard the subtext, and I heard James saying, "Mmm, that was really good." I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you very much. And as the three of you may or may not remember, they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show days. And Justin, I think you remember why. So all I'm allowed to have is a glass of cool, clear water, and I have a pink straw in it because we love the sunshine here in New York. I'm on the north shore of Long Island, and it's going to be another hot and sticky day, but thank goodness for central air conditioning. No crime has been committed in terms of running outside and trying to get under a sprinkler somewhere. We don't have those in my community, so there you go. Uh, we are having a very interesting conversation here. I have three Personality Plus panelists. They're finding out who they are, what they love, and what they seriously think about our topic, which is... Oh, let's see. Smart cities and public safety technology. Monitor, predict, prevent crime. We're talking about all the opportunities to collect data, but from where and how do we collaborate it, coordinate it, blend it? How do we make crime fighters smarter, more efficient, more effective? And how do we try to eradicate, well, the notion of crime, that's a whole other topic, but how do we try and get on top of crime before it happens? That's the goal. Speaking with Justin Bean at Hitachi Insight Group, Dr. Allison Brooks at IDC, and James Alfano at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. We're going to take a quick 90-second pause. That refreshes, hopefully. And when we come back, we'll start the roundtable. Well, we'll continue the roundtable with Justin Bean. And I think we're going to talk about making smart decisions and how much data is really out there through the IoT, Internet of Things, AI, artificial intelligence, and automation. Is there such a thing in crime fighting in smart cities, such a thing as too much data? I think that's where we'll start, Justin. So whatever this means to you, don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. I promise we'll be right back. Kevin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The digital world is moving faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly city and local government leaders adapt to accelerated ongoing change. The definition of future success is being shaped by many factors, such as increased citizen and business demands for digital services, a growing variety of digital devices and sensors causing a data deluge, and increased volatility in politics and environment, coupled with constrained resources. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Game-changing Smart Cities of the Future is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today.
You're listening to Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game Changing Smart Cities of the Future. Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. Smart cities and public safety and technology or public safety technology, if you prefer. Monitor, predict, prevent crime with my three experts, Justin Bean at Hitachi Insight Group, Dr. Allison. If you're looking her up, Allison has one L. Dr. Allison Brooks at IDC and James Alfano at SAP. I have their smiling pictures in front of me, so I feel like we're all in the same room, even though we're not. We're going to start the roundtable in earnest with some notes here from Justin Bean at Hitachi. And let's talk talk about well, we're talking about data coordinating it collaborating it unsiloing it i hate the way that sounds but you know what i mean and here's what justin told me in his notes too much data is a real problem Internet of Things, AI, artificial intelligence, and automation can help us see the right information and sort through the haystack. So are IoT and AI and automation creating too much data, or are they helping get it clear for us? Justin, why don't you tell us? Sure. So I I don't think it's the amount of data, uh, but it's what we do with it. So we often see that a lot of organizations are very data rich, but they're insight poor. So the data itself uh, is only valuable once we understand what it means and what it means for what we do next. Um, That being said, the complexity in managing and understanding that data is rapidly exploding as the number of systems, the number of uh, data providers, and the type of data that we have coming out of our cities uh, is getting extremely complex, difficult to manage, and difficult to pull those insights out of. So cities and other organizations need a way of bringing that data together, integrating it, and then being able to uh, cross-analyze it uh, across departments, across organizations, uh, and and across different data sets. So that's a a key piece of turning all of that data into something that matters. Um, Now, the other piece of it is not necessarily too much data, but perhaps too much access to data. Um, So this addresses some of the privacy um, questions that we were talking about earlier. Uh, And I I just want to say that secrecy is very different from privacy. Um, Now, uh, addressing that issue, a ton of data is being collected from our cities. Uh, There are a couple of different ways that I think we can address that issue. One is doing uh, intelligence at the edge. So when we're able to do edge computing, and instead of sending raw video footage of people's faces and personally identifiable information to something like a central core, uh, we can do a lot of the number crunching video analytics at the edge and then just send the metadata and the insights uh, back to uh, whoever is using it. Uh, and that solves a lot of the privacy issue and also the liability issue of storing and managing all of that personally identifiable information. Um, also things like uh, automated privacy protection on cameras that blur the, the faces and bodies of people so you're not actually collecting that uh, personally identifiable information in the first place is, is really important. So when we as the technology providers look at this, I think we need to uh, concurrently figure out privacy strategies and privacy protecting technologies so that we're getting the insights out of the data uh, without collecting too much personal information. Thank you. Very interesting. Allison Brooks, love to get your thoughts on this. Please join us. Well, I just have some uh, numbers to actually tell you a little bit more about what what we're dealing with here. So in in terms of our forecast models for uh, the Internet of Things, like the global market spend, um, just some basic numbers. We're forecasting $692 billion being spent on IoT in 2015. That's the base year for our forecast. 
to 1.46 trillion in 2020. So if you're thinking about that, that's a 16% CAGR, which is pretty crazy. And and when you're thinking about that in in terms of the number of endpoints, that's 12 billion in 2015 and 30 billion in 2020. So we're talking about a pretty remarkable um, and escalating quickly um, marketplace, which is um, a very difficult uh, in terms of just the volume and the variety of, of sensors that we're, we're dealing with. It's it's quite a handful. And when I think about it, I also think about it in, as as we talk about in the public safety kind of context. And we're looking at all sorts of the you know the the all sorts of different digital assets and digital and sensors. So we're talking about even like forensics and biometrics increasingly and things that we don't even know about yet, right? There's all sorts of um, new and different data sources that we haven't even, that haven't even been realized yet. So those are the types of things that I think about and I think about them in, in, in terms of a platform context because I think that's the only way that they can actually become manageable is by actually having this sort of interoperable, data interoperability on a platform that allows you to plug and play as things emerge and there's a kind of fluid scalability that occurs by virtue of there being, um, uh, you know, standards that are adhered to and um, the ability to sort of incorporate new things as they emerge because I don't think the the old way of working in terms of trying to create some sort of patch between one, one data file to another is, is the way we can go forward in a kind of a digitally transformed world, which is uh, another thing that we are constantly talking about. But I do think we're still wrestling with that whole, what I refer to as that big data dilemma for law, for law enforcement and public safety in terms of having to figure out how to drive value. And that gets back to what I was talking about in the opening sort of segment on like actually driving to outcomes so we want to derive value from that, that those increase in volume, the velocity, and the variety. All three of those things together create some really um, insane challenges for, for law enforcement uh, going forward. Thankfully, I think the technology itself will be able to um, help move that uh, forward in terms of actually the ways that, say, cognitive or a number of the sort of advanced analytics are able to move that forward, take away that sort of automation pain um, of, of that of that process and of that workflow. So I think we're at a different stage now where in the next sort of three to five years, I think we're going to see some, some real gains being made in the, uh, being able to sift through all of those, uh, you know, you know the, the haystacks to be able to get to those, those critical needles. Thank you, Allison. Very, very interesting. And James Alfano, we'd love to get your thoughts on this topic, please. So, <clears throat> I mean, both prior statements are, are incredibly accurate. The whole idea that you know, I've been taking a look at is, is really trying to understand what information that you could look at that you would understand to understand your situation. So there's so many different data sources. There's so many different data sets, models, bays, siloed, etc. Uh, but in the end, you know, as technology providers, we have to try to find a way to help our customers uh, and ourselves uh, siphon through the noise, and uh, we describe noise as so many things that you're looking at, you can't really see anything. So how do you find the needle in the haystack? Uh, you have to find a way to build simpler views, simpler visualization, and I think that we're starting to move in that direction, starting to look at things more in the object-oriented sense, um, trying to make them simpler for the end user to be able to see triggers and alerts or events uh, and incidents it's all about, or I think it's all about, uh, creating technology that will give visualizations, that will give key indicators to the overall data sets that our end users are looking at. It's a long way from getting there, but you can see the process is starting, 
And the more that we simplize these views, maybe, for example, a policeman might not need to see all things, but they may need to see events and alerts and citizens uh, in and around themselves. So if they have an application that can reach out and see within their perimeter what's going on, it's a lot less information than them having to look at the whole city. It's kind of the same with other types of jobs um, and other types of positions where individuals only need to see slices of sets of information. Uh, but again, it, it's something that's uh, a piece of moving working art. Uh, we're getting better and better at it. We're creating better algorithms. We're automating better. We're receiving more data, but as we look at that data, we have to start to begin to think, how do we parse it? How do we break it down? How do we make it simple for the easiest consumption uh, of the citizen or the end user? Thank you. I love the way, James, you mentioned moving art. I, I haven't heard art in that context, and I think it applies. It's a very elegant and eloquent way of, of doing that. I'm going to very quickly, because we're really running tight on time. Uh, Justin, do you have one or two sentences to wrap up what your colleague shared, or can I move on? Um, I, I would just throw in one more example of, yeah. um, of data from another perspective, and that's cost. So body cameras, for example. We've seen a lot of benefits from body cameras, uh, including uh, – Vindication of officers, uh, as well as truth about the the crimes that have occurred, reductions in complaints. It, you know, these are undoubtedly beneficial for um, for uh, police organizations and for societies. However, the costs of storing that data are immense. Uh, there are even cities who are shutting down their body camera programs because mm. the storage is too expensive. And so, when we talk about all of this data, we also have to think about how are we actually going to deal with the amount of data, not just in understanding it but in the business models we use to uh, store and manage <clears throat> excuse me, that data. So just throwing that out there, I mean, it's uh, just something to think about uh, because some of these companies that are coming out will actually give away the body cameras, uh, but yeah. then the total cost of ownership is, is quite high as they, uh, as they pay for the data along the road. Very interesting. Something to take on to that, Bonnie, it, it, yeah. Taser, we now, know, now known as Axon, um, that's what they've recently done is actually just are, are, they're willing to just forego the cost for the actual hardware um, if, they, if, a, if a PD signs on to their, their storage and their, and their uh, digital evidence management solution kind of thing. So it's really switched the sort of marketplace dynamics considerably. Interesting. And, and many of us have seen the body cam data results uh, on, on the news in some very mm -hmm. dramatic cases where officers used questionable amounts of force and actually were brought to trial on their decision-making, supported or not supported, by public opinion based on seeing clips from the body cams right on TV, on the news channels. And uh, it, it's the toll and the price are certainly high and, and uh, good, bad, or ugly beyond even the cost of the equipment and the amount of data. There's so many social implications. Speaking of social implications, Dr. Allison Brooks, I'm looking at your notes, and I picked something different than I told you on the break. I'd like to talk about the following just briefly, get your POV on this. You say, we're just now beginning to leverage social media content to help public safety organizations investigate threats and criminal behavior, as well as to communicate with citizens, businesses, and tourists. So social media, what are we talking about? Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and, and Instagram? And, and what are we talking Snap or whatever they call those things. <laughs> what are we talking about here, Allison? Is it valid? Does it help? Oh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, when I was out at the IACP, which is the International Association of Police, of Police Chiefs Conference this last fall, um, there's a session, a really interesting session on leveraging social media 
um, within the law enforcement context. And basically, one of the things that, that uh, a, a couple, one of the things that the, the presenter suggested was that they basically have retooled how do they how they start and you know initially launch an investigation, meaning that they go and they mine all of the data in the social media sites and feeds that they can, everything that's sort of considered open IT out there, and they collect as much evidence and data as they can that way. And then if they need to, um, they, they then go ahead and sort of issue a, a warrant. But half the time they don't need to because they've co- been able to collect all manner of evidence just by, you know, geofencing X, Y, or Z, um, Facebook, Twitter, and, uh, and uh, you know, other, other social media sites for evidence, and they're able to collect all that because it is all, all open. That's what I was referring to earlier about sometimes the courts and the privacy commissioners that get involved in that regard, they, um, they you know, they're not sure about the usability uh, uh, and the privacy implications of the initial intent of that of that data, so that there's a little bit of a, a wrinkle that way, certainly. But um, my understanding is it's that you know, law enforcement, for example, are able to um, scroll and mine, say, Facebook postings or Instagram feeds for, say, suicide um, uh, risk at risk postings. And then what they are able to do is, is figure out where that person is. And if they're in a school, they can actually isolate where that individual is in that school and get the appropriate resource sent to. And this is not just like a one-off kind of occurrence that that, uh, mm-hmm. that law enforcement is running into, but they're literally intervening and preventing sort of, or, be, or being able to attend to in advance, you know, suicide alerts far earlier than they used to be able to. And, and similarly, you know, we see in in uh, the Dutch National Police are one of my favorite uh, organizations to say, because I think they're really progressive in that regard. But what they're doing is, you know, geofencing a particular um, area if there's an incident that's occurred, you know, not, not necessarily if it's a crazy, um, a very violent crime, for example, but they'll push out um, alerts to citizens in a geodemarcated field so that they can, you know, say, can you be on the lookout for this particular kid that's gone missing or a purse snatcher or whatever, and then they have a, an automatic back channel to feed that information back to the police. And so it actually just is a sort of a, a fluid web of, of situational intelligence that involves the citizens as well. So there's lots of interesting stuff happening out there from a social media um, perspective, certainly. Thank you very much. Let's get James Alfonso to weigh in on this. James, urban, uh, urban overload, shall we say, too much data, body cam, social media, police, law enforcement, public safety, anything that Allison discussed, what's your thought? You know, we, we look at this often, and, and both from Justin's position of, of how, how much data is being stored and how much data is building up, and then from Allison's kind of look at the uh, usability. You know, again, you know, you, you, we're talking about, for example, looking for somebody who may be committing suicide. Well, there might be a string of algorithms that you're running through some form of a sentiment analysis, some form of a data mining, texting type of a tool that is looking for this information and looking for these keywords. And it's really about being able to hone these tools in to do it. <clears throat> you know, it, it's almost like I have a question, and that is, like, how many things can we search for to make mm-hmm. society better, or where do we prioritize? Um, yes, suicide is incredibly important. We don't want it to happen. But, again, is it higher than me having to look at a terrorist alert? And what are the indicators there for me to be able to find this in some form of a, of a social media feed? This kind of thing kind of spirals around my head as I'm, I'm listening to both, you know, um, <clears throat> listening to both 
talk about these these types of scenarios, and to me, it still comes down to the point of of one trying to prioritize what we're taking a look at, and two segmenting it, because in the end, there is a lot of information out there. It's a lot publicly available, but what are we going to target on? What are we going to invest in? And how are we going to, you know, use our time to make things better? Mm-hmm. It kind of comes down to putting some policy in place or putting some direction and guideline in place for each organization that are trying to target to do things better. Thank you, James. Justin Bean, love to get your thoughts on what Allison started. Talk to me. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think all of this data is, is going to be incredibly valuable, whether it be from social media um, to just statistical analysis. So when you bring in AI to figure out you know, what are uh, the, the type of, what's the type of language that people are using that leads up to them committing suicide, for example, which is a significant uh, issue in the United States. I think it's around 42,000 uh, suicides per year occur in the U.S. And this is taking the lives of a, a lot of family members. And so to James's point, when we're prioritizing these things, uh, I, I think we need to address, we need to address all of them, right? When we, we start talking about public safety, um, often we only think about law enforcement, um, but when we think about loss of life uh, and improving quality of life, I, I think we start leveraging some of those same tools to help do things like reduce suicide, help with uh, healthcare programs, right? I mean, if we want to be uh, afraid of something, and I'm not trivializing any crimes or terrorist attacks, those are extremely serious and we need to address them. But if we look at the things that are taking human life in the United States, uh, there are often cars and cheeseburgers and lack of exercise and stress. Mm. Those types mm-hmm. of things uh, are a, a, a giant uh, public health and public safety issue uh, in addition to things like air pollution uh, around the world that cause asthma and millions of deaths. So I, I think as we start breaking down the silos and thinking about things from a city or community-centric standpoint, <clears throat> we need to be able to address all of these to create that better society. And law enforcement is an incredibly important part of this. Uh, One thing about crime and terrorism especially is that it's socially disruptive, Uh, whereas uh, a heart attack from uh, eating too much cholesterol and fat and not getting enough exercise, while a tragedy, is not uh, socially disruptive. So we need to think about these things in those terms when we are making those priorities. And there are plenty of organizations out there that are, um, that are addressing these different issues <clears throat> in silos. But if we can share data across those organizations and across those silos, then we can start solving a lot of those public health issues, uh, public safety issues, sustainability issues, and economic issues that, that provide the, uh, the opportunities that help people stay away from, uh, from crime. Thank you, Justin. We are officially in our crystal ball predictions round, but James Alfano, I'm going to start with you because there's one topic in your list we didn't cover, and I would like you to reference your future prediction. I guess that's an oxymoron. No, it's not an oxymoron. It's a uh, uh, it's rhetorical or something, uh, satirical. I'm sorry. <laughs> the word loses me. You talk about urban resilience is a key theme for smart cities. So why don't you reference urban resilience around the year 2020? What will change about what you're seeing in terms of that quality of cities by that year in terms of your prediction. What do you think? James Alfano, prediction, 60 seconds. Take it away. I think the first prediction will be we'll be able to handle larger events quicker and easier. 
based on some of the things we've learned, based on the trends, based on the technology that's able to keep track of these patterns, uh, we will be able to, we will better be able to handle chaos scenarios such as an event like perhaps a shooting at a club where it's designed to cause disruption, but all the patterns and the information, the quick alerts, the cameras, the gun off, alarm alerts in the cities, all of these things are going to advance us now to a point of where we can react much, much faster than what we're seeing now. I think that first responders um, will have an incredible response time compared to what we see now and today, and, uh, and hopefully uh, these events will, will be reduced so that it's not watered down when we see an event because we've seen so many of them. Thank you very much. I like your optimism and very well phrased. We all know what's going on in the world today. It's it's a, a blessing. It's a pleasure. It's a sigh of relief when you can turn on the news at 6 p.m. and not hear about another tragedy. I'll just let that one rest. I'll let's circle around Justin Bean. Hitachi Insight Group, 60 seconds. What do you predict by 2020 will change about public safety in smart cities? Yeah, I think change is the only constant. And uh, we're going to see ever increasing an acceleration of change, especially uh, driven by technology in our society. Um, automation is becoming a, a very big issue for um, the automation of jobs. I think J.P. Morgan just automated about 360,000 lawyer hours with uh, artificial intelligent software. There are plenty of uh, uh, companies building automated cars and trucks that will eliminate a lot of uh, blue-collar jobs and driving jobs, millions of those jobs throughout the U.S. And this is only going to create more economic and social stress. So as we, as uh, political, city, public safety, and social scientists uh, look at this, we need to think about these things holistically uh, so that, again, we're not operating in silos and only trying to punish those who have been uh, affected by technological disruption and, and change in our societies. Uh, so we need to be able to think about that holistic picture, and that's going to become ever more important as we start making more and more choices about how we invest our time and energy and money to solve these challenges uh, in, in a variety of ways. And I hope that we make the choice to not only uh, enforce our laws and empower our police officers, but to uh, empower those who use data to try to drive society towards uh, a better place where uh, those who are affected by this disruption um, have the opportunities they need to not turn to a life of crime. Thank you very much. Well put, Dr. Allison Brooks. I saved 60 seconds for you. Actually, 90 seconds, Allison. Use it well. Go ahead. Favoritism. I'm saying that uh, by 2020, uh, and this comes from an actual prediction that we've done um, for our Smart Cities uh, annual prediction cycle, so 20% of public safety agencies are going to be using cognitive cognitive computing to predict and prevent domestic mental health and addiction incidents, and this will drastically reduce service requests. So right now what you have is basically about 75% of all 911 calls to police. They're, they're not criminal in nature necessarily, but they're rather um, you know, d- domestic disputes, drug addiction, drug use, mental health issues, uh, housing problems, etc. And the public safety system is currently, because of those same sort of silos, really inadequately um, equipped to address those, those underlying root causes of those calls for service, and the wrong resources are being dispatched. So what we're saying is by 2020, um, with the advances in traditional law enforcement, IT, and cognitive and sustained pressure to reduce those service calls, we're going to see a shift to engaging social services and other agencies by leveraging cognitive and AI and advanced analytics so that those early behaviors and those triggers can, that lead to crime later can be actually curtailed in the shorter term. So we're looking for that deeper analysis 
of the multitude of triggers and alerts that uh, are tracked by many of uh, organizations and agencies within a given um, a given city or state, um, so that those touch points um, are alerted and attended to earlier, and so that you actually have a, like a long-term plan for uh, early intervention and better proactive management in the in the long in the long term. Thank you very much. Right on time. I appreciate that. So we have had our Smart Cities and Public Safety Technology Monitor Predict Prevent Crime Part 2. Very interesting conversation. We did leverage the notes my panelists sent me. They were very generous with their notes for the Part 1 in April, and we were able to pick up a lot of different talking points today. So I want to say thank you, a sincere thank you and great appreciation to Justin Bean at Hitachi Insight Group, Dr. Allison Brooks at IDC, and James Alfano at SAP, and, of course, to Marlon Zell at SAP for putting together this excellent panel. Marlon, they did well again. Appreciate that. Is there a part three in your future? I don't know, Justin and Allison and James. You never know. I'm going to say thank you to Kevin at World Talk Radio, our engineer extraordinaire, for getting us on the air and keeping us there. And I'm going to give you my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Justin Bean, just like Dr. Allison Brooks, just like James Alfano. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another edition of Game Changing Radio. And tomorrow we will be back on the Business Channel, 11 a.m. Eastern, with our flagship series, Coffee Break with Game Changers, talking about you don't own me, but do you own my data? Yes, we're referencing retail and anybody, any place, anywhere you give your personal information to online. Privacy, protection, security. Not so sure they exist anymore. Tune in. I have a great panel. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Smart Cities of the Future, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.